In way of recap, the first half of Daniel 10 (laughs) is truly fascinating. Daniel is an old man in his late 80s. His life has been a wild ride. But Daniel senses that the end is near. Taken captive as a teenager from Jerusalem, enslaved to serve in the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel had a front row seat to witness the rise and swift fall of the Babylonian Empire. In fact, three years before chapter 10 begins, Daniel had been in the very midst of a global transition of power as Cyrus the Persian came to dominate the world stage. To Daniel's amazement, as one of Cyrus's first matters of business, this pagan king issues a decisive decree allowing the Jewish people to return to their homeland in order to rebuild their temple. Regrettably, after a few years, word reaches this aged prophet that the project, the temple project, had stalled with the foundation. Grieved, uncertain, concerned, Daniel, he gets on his knees in prayer. For three long weeks, Daniel seeks the Lord. He deprives himself of pleasant food. He fasts for meat and wine. He even denies himself a bath, hoping, desperate, to hear from the Lord. After 21 days of silence, Daniel decides it's finally time to get back to his normal routine. In fact, he had pressing business, bringing him to the banks of the Tigris River. And it's here, out of the blue, we read how Daniel receives this vision of a certain man whose description identifies him as being none other than Jesus. Daniel is so overwhelmed by what he's seeing that he instantly falls on his face. Then wonderment turns to dread when he feels the hand, the touch on the shoulder. As Daniel looks up, he finds himself now face to face with an angelic messenger sent by God some three weeks earlier. After explaining the cause for his delay, this unnamed angel not only reminds Daniel that he was greatly beloved, but he encourages him not to fear. God had a plan for Israel, a plan that was true, sure. Though recent news had caused Daniel to worry, this angel had been sent And then verse 14 tells us why. To make him understand what would happen to his people in the latter days. This verse sets the context for a prophecy that will really carry us through the end of the book. Verse 15, Daniel chapter 10. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face towards the ground and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Now, over the course of his life, God allowed Daniel to see much of the future. And what he had seen had taken an emotional toll. He says, again in the text, because of the vision, my sorrow has overwhelmed me. Daniel has seen, prophetically, the people return to the land. Jerusalem, once again, bustling. 
the temple vibrant with activity. But he's also witnessed that future temple desecrated by an abominable act. The city destroyed and the people again slaughtered and scattered across the world. Daniel and his prophetic visions was able to see the very day that the Messiah would present himself to Jerusalem, to Israel, fulfilling the promise that God had made since Eden to provide a Savior for sin. But he was also burdened with the knowledge the Jewish Messiah would be cut off by those he came to save. Daniel wanted to know the future, and God obliged. I mean, all the way back in Daniel 2, verse 44, Daniel was aware, he knew with confidence, the story of history would end with God breaking into pieces and consuming all of the kingdoms of men. Daniel also knew this final chapter would close with, quote, the God of heaven establishing a kingdom on this earth that would never be destroyed and stand forever. He knew these things. But the challenge for Daniel is that he also understood the chapters of this divine story leading up to its illustrious end would be terribly dark and depressing, especially with regards to the Hebrew people, his people. Daniel knew that before the Prince of Peace would arrive, the world would be thrown into utter chaos through the deceitful actions of the son of perdition. He knew that before the Jews would accept Jesus as their Christ, they would first be deceived by the Antichrist. Daniel knew a restored world could only follow a global war. Eternal life, yeah, it would be granted, but only coming out of the midst. Terrible death and destruction. The Hebrew people, in the end of the story, would be saved, but only after they experienced a satanic persecution like none other. Like Daniel was confident, that in the end, the kingdom of God would be established. But he also knew that this would only happen after the kingdoms of man brought this planet to the point of ruin. Like, you can understand, right? We've gone through the book of Daniel. We're in the 11th, 10th, 11th chapter. You can understand why the vision caused Daniel so much sorrow. You know, in many ways, because we also know the future, having the word of God, like Daniel, we face a similar dynamic. We look around at the world that's burning with the knowledge that the future <laughs> ugh, doesn't get any better. In fact, it gets much, much worse. Like, like Daniel, <laughs> we've been given a revelation. We've read the whole book. Lies will supplant truth. Love will be called hate. Evil will be reclassified as being moral. What is right hailed, what is wrong hailed as being right. Godlessness, we, we understand, will increase. Perversity spread. And the people of God will be persecuted. There's no question that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in our world. And it's in those moments, faced with such a pressing reality that, like Daniel, we can feel overwhelmed and tired and breathless. Now, let's continue by seeing what eventually provided Daniel strength, the strength he so desperately needed. Verse 18. Then again, the one 
Daniel sang, having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong, yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. In the case of Daniel, God sent an angel to touch him and strengthen him. Again, in the book of Hebrews, we learn that angels have the capacity to minister and encourage the saints of God. And yet, if Daniel found so much strength in the fact that an angel had touched him, how much more, my friend, should you and I find strength and courage and the reality that the Holy Spirit indwells us? Notice, the angel commanded Daniel. He says, peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. Christian, always remember, your strength and your peace in the midst of the chaos of this world are not to be found in something that you do or manufacture, but in remembering who God has made you. You're to be. I'm also struck by the fact that for the third time now, we've seen Daniel reminded of God's great love for him. You know, anytime you are studying the Scriptures, and in a short period of time, you find a phrase repeated often, it tells us it's important. Oh man, greatly beloved. Like, Daniel needed to hear that message. And why? Remembering how much God loved him was paramount to Daniel fearing not. Christian, our motivation, the motivating strength to be faithful in our calling in this fallen world should never be, heaven forbid, to prove our love for God. Instead, it should exist as a response of God's great love for us. You know, when God loves you, and you really wrap your brain around that idea, loves you, what do you really have to fear? In 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 17, the old apostle writes, Love has been perfected among us in this. That we, may be, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, speaking of Jesus, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love Him, speaking of Jesus. Why? Well, John writes, because He first loved us. Daniel, he's been praying. This angel had been dispatched with a message. At verse 14, the angel says that he had come to make Daniel understand what would happen to his people, the Jewish people, in the latter days, adding then that the vision refers to many days yet to come. Daniel, initially, he's not sure he really has the emotional capacity to handle more bad news, but now... He's been strengthened, so he's ready to roll. Verse 20, Daniel 10. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? 
And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia, these demonic forces. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. More forces, like the spiritual battle is constant, it's continual. But I tell you, the angel, what is noted in the scripture of truth. Now we have in parentheses, at the end of chapter 10, the angel writing, speaking. He says, no one upholds me against these things except Michael, your prince. Now, there's no chapter breaks in the original text. So we get to chapter 11, verse 1. The angel's still talking. He says, also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm or to install and strengthen him. Now, it appears that this angel had been charged with the task of making sure that Darius the Mede had been the one placed on the throne of Babylon. He adds, now, I will tell you the truth. And we have to kind of pause there. Before we get to this prophecy, and this prophecy, again, will carry us to the end of the book. Like, I want to point out that this chapter, chapter 11, is so detailed, so specific, that critics of the Bible have tried to make the case that it had to have been written by someone other than Daniel years after the events had occurred. They argue that this can't be a future prophecy given to Daniel some 375 years ahead of time. It's too exacting. It's too specific. It's too detailed. That's impossible. Now, one of the reasons that this argument is made is that it's estimated. I, I, I'm regurgitating some information. I didn't actually document this or count them. But it's estimated, credible sources, that within these 35 verses, we have 135 prophecies already fulfilled in history. That's astounding. To the critical accusation, the specificity of a prophecy like this must be evidence that someone wrote it after seeing the future play itself out. <laughs> I 100% agree with you. You know, it's not an accident. 25% of your Bible is prophecy. You see, the exacting nature of what's precisely recorded about future events from men living years beforehand should be seen as the evidence that this book is the word of a God who knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Now, I should, I should warn you. This is kind of a disclosure. The first 35 verses of this chapter can be, <laughs> I, I'm going to say this mildly, tough sledding and it's that it's the case for like two reasons really for starters at first it's going to come across being very repetitive now there are details provided in this passage that you could classify as being new material in fact a lot of it will be introduced towards the end of the passage but it's just the truth that a great portion of chapter 11 is a repeating of an earlier revelation given to Daniel in chapter 8. Now, the second reason that this chapter can be difficult, again, tough sledding, centers on the fact that if you don't like history, I I'm a history buff, I like history, but I understand not everybody likes history. If you don't like history, let's say specifically you're not a big fan of like 2nd and 3rd century B.C. Greek history, I, I know that... Probably not a lot of you. I mean, most of us took college classes on 2nd and 3rd century B.C. Greek history. I mean, 
it's a, it's a big thing these days. Like, <laughs> if you don't find that engaging, like, you're going to find the subject matter we get into this morning boring. I'm sorry, I'll do my best to make it entertaining. But regardless of how you feel, what you should take away as we work our way through this text is that the things we encounter were written at a minimum 300 years before they happened. We haven't been a country for 300 years. Imagine somebody writing a founding father documenting in great detail everything that happened in 2020. That's how radical this chapter is. So, with that out of the way, let's, let's do it. Let's do this. The angel's continuing. He's speaking to Daniel. Second half of verse 2, chapter 11. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than all of them. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now, following King Cyrus, who is a contemporary of Daniel, the angel tells him, that three more kings will arise in Persia, but the fourth, well, he will be noteworthy. Now, historically, we know this fourth king from Cyrus was Xerxes, whose 21-year reign occurred between the years 485 and 464 B.C. By the way, uh, Xerxes is the same Persian king, kind of central to this wonderful story in Esther. Now, as we're told in verse 2, Xerxes was, quote, far richer than all the Persian kings who'd come before him. It's equally true that by his strength and through his riches, Xerxes was able to stir up all within his realm against Greece. In fact, Xerxes, historically speaking, would lead a massive Persian army, the largest army ever conceived. He would lead them into battle to put down a growing threat from the Greeks. On August 20th, 480 B.C., Xerxes would prove victorious over King Leonidas and the 300 of Sparta in what's known as the Battle of Thermopylae. Verse 3. Then, so after these things, a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity or his biological heirs, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others beside these. In the year 336 B.C., a 20-year-old Macedonian, who had been a pupil of Aristotle, he assumed the role of his father Philip. This mighty king, his name was Alexander, driven by vi visions of grandeur and world dominance, Alexander would do according to his will. Against great odds, he was able to lead a smaller Greek army into battle, defeating the Persians. From that point, Alexander proceeded to conquer the known world in little more than a decade, ten years. By the age of 32, Alexander the Great ruled with great dominion. Tragically, though, when he had arisen to the height of his power, Alexander unexpectedly became ill, and he died in the ancient city of Babylon. 
Now, without a successor among his posterity or a capable second in command able to lead according to his dominion, Alexander's empire was quickly uprooted, broken up, and divided among four of his strongest generals. Cassander would rule Greece. Lysimachus governed an area known as Asia Minor, which included Macedonia. Seleucus assumed control over Syria, Israel, and lands kind of to the east, which would have been the remnants of the Babylonian Persian empires. And Ptolemy was given charge over Egypt and North Africa. Now, just a warning. This is where things start to bog down. Verse 5. Also, the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Among these four separate kingdoms that made up Alexander's unified Grecian empire, our attention specifically turns to two of the four. We have the king of the south, which was Ptolemy of Egypt. We also have mentioned one of his princes, which we'll soon learn to be a reference to the Grecian king of the north, or Seleucus of Syria. Now, for the next 150 years, these two powers in the north and the south would be in constant conflict with one another. Now, the only reason that this matters and is included in the Bible is that situated directly between these two powers was the land of Israel, who constantly found herself caught in the crosshairs of these many wars. In fact, the reason that these two kingdoms are referenced in our passage geographically as the south and the north was their proximity to Israel. That's why. Well, in the beginning, the Ptolematic kingdom of Egypt would prove stronger. Verse 5, kind of setting up a thesis over time, the Seleucid Empire in the north would gain power and greater dominion over the south. Verse 6, And at the end of some years they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her. And with him who strengthened her in those times. At the end of some years, speeds up the storyline here to kind of the mid-250s. After constant fighting, the kings of the north and south, they decide to join forces to accomplish this agreement. The daughter of the southern king, Ptolemy II, her name was Bernice, was given in marriage to the king of the north, a man named Antiochus II. Now, the first misstep to this arrangement was that in order to marry Bernice, Antiochus II, well, he had to put away his current wife, Laodice. Prophetically, we're told in the end, Bernice would not retain the power of her authority. Now, this was fulfilled the moment her father, Ptolemy II died. Like no sooner than the man's body had been laid in the ground, Antiochus sent Bernice away. Why? So he could be reunited with his love, his true love, Laodice. 
That said, we also read prophetically that neither he nor his authority would stand. (laughs) It's been said, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And there's probably no greater example of this than Laodice. Like, as you can rightly imagine, you know, she's kind of a little perturbed, a little upset with her husband, Antiochus II, over kind of the entire ordeal, you know, being cast aside for a younger bride, Bernice. So even after Bernice is sent away and Antiochus II is like, Laodice, you've always been my boo. What happens? She's like, oh, yeah. She poisons him and watches Antiochus die. Well, we then read that Bernice would, quote, be given up with those who brought her. See, after killing her husband, Antiochus II, Laodice swiftly moves to have Bernice and all of her attendants murdered, along with the newborn son that had provided this woman, quote, strength in those days. In the end, Laodice's actions ensured that her son, Seleucus II would assume the throne. Now verse 8. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place. So one of Bernice's family members. Who shall come with an army? Enter the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Now, naturally, the Ptolemies in the south were none too happy about everything that had, that had transpired with Bernice. Not only was the treaty broken, but like one of theirs was murdered. In the end, to avenge his sister's death, Ptolemy III, he decides to come north with an army. He enters the fortress of the king, and he dealt accordingly. Now, in the end, he does spare Seleucus II's life. But Ptolemy III took the Seleucid gods captive back to Egypt, along with a group of their princes and precious articles of silver and gold, the bounty, the spoils of war. In fact, consistent with the prophecy, Ptolemy III's reign would end up, quote, continuing more years than the king of the north, that being Seleucus II, though Seleucus II was much younger. Verse 9, And the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife, and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Notice, His sons shall stir up strife. Now, for a time, the Ptolemies in the south, Egypt, they kind of had the upper hand. But that would all change when two of Seleucus II's sons, Seleucus III, I don't know if you could have guessed that one, and Antiochus III, who, by the way, this man Antiochus III, because he's going to be included in our story quite a bit, Moving forward, I'm just going to refer to him as three. These two guys, Seleucus III and three, they lead military incursions into the south. And not only would these men, quote, assemble a multitude of great forces, but they would really be successful in, quote, stirring up strife. Now, obviously, this would elicit some type of a response. So, verse 11, the king of the south 
was moved with rage, went out and fought with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he'll be cast down ten, tens of thousands. He will not prevail. Upset by the aggressive actions of the Seleucid dynasty, the king of the south, who is now, by the way, Ptolemy IV, he decides to take on three, who's now the king of the north, even though he's vastly outnumbered. Now, though three's heart was lifted up, he's filled with pride, believing like his armies, that they would prevail. He ends up suffering a stinging defeat, losing tens of thousands of men. Now, in their victory, and this is what makes it relevant, the Ptolemies were able to expand their territorial reach, taking Israel from the Seleucid Empire. Now, you can imagine, three, he couldn't wait for a rematch. Verse 13. For the king of the north will return and muster a great multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Now, by this point in power, uh, at this point in history, the power had transitioned from Ptolemy IV to his son, Ptolemy V. Also, we read, violent men of your people, so Hebrews, shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north, again three, shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will. And no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. Embarrassed by his earlier defeat, three, Antiochus III. He returns north to Syria, goes home, he regroups. After some years, he's able to muster an even greater army than before, having, we're told in the text, much equipment. They're armed to the teeth. Now, even though the armies of Ptolemy V put up a good fight, a valiant fight, with the help of the Jewish people who joined in kind of an insurrection against the Ptolemies who were governing their land, three, bro, he proves to be victorious. He not only kicks the snot out of the Ptolemies, he regains the territories he'd lost. Again, this would include the glorious land of Israel. Verse 17, he, again Antiochus III, three, shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of woman to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him or before him. Now, in a shrewd political move, on account that three's got the upper hand, this king, he decides, like in an attempt to mend fences with Ptolemy V, he extends to him, three, extends to him the hand of his daughter, a woman by the name of, of Cleopatra I in marriage. Now, pump your brakes. This is Cleopatra I. This is not the Cleopatra you're familiar with, Mark Anthony and all that. That Cleopatra would actually be the seventh. So we're, we're different woman. Now, three's plan, again, shrewd, 
was to have his daughter marry Ptolemy V, hoping to gain influence in Egypt, desiring in the end that he might be able to kind of get his daughter to betray the king so that he could take power over Egypt. Now, to three's great disappointment, Cleopatra did not stand with him or before him. (laughs) Instead, she actually falls deeply in love with Ptolemy V and ends up remaining loyal to him over her father all her days. In fact, the two who were married in 194 B.C. have three kids, and as far as history says, lived happily ever after. It's kind of a silver lining to the story. Verse 18. Well, after this, three, Antiochus III, shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to the end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Seeing that his plans to, to take Egypt covertly, using his daughter, had backfired on still power-hungry, three, he recruits the aid of a famous general from Carthage named Hannibal. And he turns his attention towards the coastland, northward. His plan was to try to conquer Asia Minor as well as Greece, the two other sections of the Greek Empire. Now, to his chagrin, (laughs) three loses in spectacular fashion. I mean, it doesn't work. And soon after, he comes back home, but he'll end up dying. A defeated man, three ends up dying, dirt broke. Verse 20. There shall arise in his place, so in the place of three, one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Now following the death of three, Antiochus III, as the eldest of his sons, Seleucus IV, would assume the throne. That said, he's still struggling, immediately struggling, under the financial ruin and the massive debts of his father's failed conquests. As such, Seleucus IV, he decides that he has no other choice but to impose taxes on his subjects, which would include the glorious kingdom of Israel. Now, as is often the case, increased taxation (laughs) drew quite a bit of ire of those in the kingdom. As such, his reign would be cut short when he's assassinated. Not in anger, not in battle, but he is destroyed, fulfilling the prophecy recorded here in the text. The rumor, by the way, was that his brother, Antiochus IV, had him whacked. Now, at this point, note that the prophecy here, it's beginning to round into form. We're getting to our point. Verse 21. And in his place, O Seleucus IV, shall arise a vile person, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The man who assumed the throne after Seleucus IV, was his youngest brother, who people had suspicions that it was the one behind the assassination. Antiochus IV becomes king. History does confirm that this man was a vile person, 
or, or literally in the Hebrew, a despicable human being. Because Antiochus IV was so far down the succession pole. Like he wasn't generally recognized in his day or given the honor of being considered royalty. That said, through the use of flattery and some brutal tactics, he was able to peaceably seize the kingdom for himself anyway. Historically, we understand that Antiochus IV became the new king of the Seleucid Empire in 175 B.C. Aside from being shrewd and a tactician, there is no question Antiochus had kind of a lofty view of himself. As soon as he takes the throne, he actually changes his name from Antiochus IV to Antiochus Epiphanes. An epiphany. He viewed himself as God manifest, or Antiochus, the gift of God. Now, in verses 22 through 27, we have described in, in astounding detail Antiochus Epiphanes' successful conquest of Egypt uh, around 170 B.C. Verse 22, we'll, we'll read the whole section. We're told that with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a, number, a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them plunder, spoils, and riches. He shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his people and his courage against the king of the south, which is now Ptolemy VI, with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, speaking of Ptolemy VI, for they shall devise plans against him. Yet those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings, their hearts shall be bent on evil. And they shall seek lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. Thinking that Antiochus Epiphanes was, was ill-prepared for the job. I mean, he wasn't even you know, on the first sheet of succession. The Ptolemies, hearing that he had become king, they devised a plan to launch an attack, thinking they're vulnerable. What they didn't anticipate was that, kind of desperate for funds, but also smartly, Antiochus Epiphanes launched a preemptive assault against Egypt. The Ptolemies were caught off guard Antiochus Epiphanes was able to capture every city, going into Egypt proper, every city, that is, but Alexandria. In the end, Antiochus Epiphanes, he really did what his fathers had not done, nor his forefathers. Not only did he defeat successfully a majority of the Ptolematic forces, dispersing among them the plunder, spoils, and riches, but he captured the king, Ptolemy VI. Again, the specificity here is amazing. But history documents a scene where, sitting across the same table, these two men, Ptolemy VI and Antiochus Epiphanes, they reach an accord, a deal, that Ptolemy VI would remain in power, but only to act as a puppet of Antiochus. Now, as one would expect, both of these kings, their hearts were bent on evil. They had no intention, neither of them, of holding up their end of the deal. Verse 28. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. So shall he do damage and return to his own land. 
Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, you got to understand, he's, he's emboldened by his successes. He's coming back from Egypt. Now, what had been a thorn in the side was the Hebrew people. So he comes into the land, he's got some money, he's got some prestige, he's kind of solidified himself, and he decides to engage and tinker with Israel's religious affairs. The way he does this is he removes the rightful high priest, replacing him with someone that would be his pawn. Like Antiochus Epiphanes, different from those that came before, he was determined to impose Hellenistic culture onto the Jewish people at all costs. In fact, the text says that, it, that this move, it was a move against the Holy Covenant. And in turn, it caused severe damage. Messing with the priesthood would do that. Verse 29, at the appointed time, he shall return and go south, and go towards the south. This would be an, a second attack of Antiochus Epiphanes against Egypt. But, we're told, it shall not be like the former or latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. <laughs> Again, this is fascinating. Like When it became clear that Ptolemy VI had kind of reneged on their agreement, Antiochus Epiphanes, he launches a second attack on Egypt. This time, though, he's not as successful as the first. And the reason for that is that he ends up being flanked by the, by the Roman navy. Interestingly, the Roman navy had been dispatched from, you want to take a guess? Cyprus. Ships from Cyprus. As Antiochus approaches Alexandria, knowing he's in trouble, that he's defeated, history tells us that his path ends up being blocked by an elderly Roman ambassador named Gaius Leninus. This ambassador delivers a message directly from the Roman Senate directing Antiochus to withdraw all of his armies from Egypt or consider himself in a state of war with the Roman Republic. Now, hoping to buy himself some time, Antiochus, he, he tells the man that he would discuss it with his council. But in response, this elderly statesman, he ends up drawing a line in the sand around Antiochus' epiphanies. And he says, before you leave this circle... Give me a reply that I can take back to the Roman Senate. Defeated. Antiochus has no choice but to relent, withdraw his forces. This was a humiliating moment for Antiochus Epiphanes. Second half of verse 30, Therefore, because of this, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. Enraged and embarrassed, Antiochus Epiphanes takes a bit of a detour heading back to Syria into Judea. His intention is to take out his frustration. Sadly, word had, had gotten back to Judea that Antiochus Epiphanes had died. There was a revolt. Antiochus had not died. He comes back with vengeance. In fact, and we discussed this in Daniel 8, 2 Maccabees 5 records how Antiochus Epiphanes end up in a period of three days slaughters 80,000 Jews. Continuing, so he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Those that were staying true to the faith, he slaughtered. But historically, we know that the, the Jews spared in this mass, massacre were those who 
forsook their religious heritage and adopted Hellenistic culture, just like the prophecy says. Verse 31, And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. They shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Josephus records, and he's a first century Jewish historian, how Antiochus Epiphanes, he enters the temple after the slaughter. He does so on the Sabbath, the holy day, and he sets up there in the holy place, the Holy of Holies, a statue of Zeus. He ends up slaughtering a pig, draining its blood, and splattering all of the holy artifacts, sprinkling it all over the place, desecrating. It was an abominable act that caused incredible desecration. From that point forward, he also put an end, we're told, to the daily sacrifices. Continuing, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he corrupts with flattery. So there were people prospering. But the people who know their God shall be strong. And they'll carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understood shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Again, from the annals of history, we know that in response to these atrocious actions of Antiochus Epiphanes, in 168 B.C., there's a revolution led by the Maccabees. Now when they fall, we're told, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the, end, until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. In the, era, in the end, it would take three years. But in 165 B.C., the Jewish people were successful. And finally, once and for all, eliminating themselves from Seleucid control, reinstituting the temple sacrifices. Soon after, just rounding out the story, under mysterious circumstances, Antiochus Epiphanes would die a horrific death. Now, we have to stop here for the sake of time. But it is with this evil man, Antiochus Epiphanes, as the prism. Beginning with verse 36, another vile man that we call the Antichrist, he'll start to come into view and to focus. Now, more details about the Antichrist, his identity, character, activity, person. More details about him and his future will be articulated in the final verses of Daniel 11 than in maybe any other place in the Bible. It is an incredible section of Scripture. Aside from this, we will also see the conquests of the Antichrist and his ultimate destruction at the culmination of a battle in the Valley of Megiddo. In closing, I've heard history defined as his story. And I believe that it's true. It's his story. In Daniel 11, it's a profound example of this reality. Daniel, 350 or so years beforehand, writing, documenting, detailing this prophetic word. It's it's, it's incredible. But it just proves that God knows what will happen before it ever happens. Like nothing is outside of the sovereign will of God or beyond His direct control. 
And this morning, you need, my friend, to be encouraged by that simple reality. That whatever situation you find yourself facing, or whatever has you presently filled with fear, or whatever is going on in your life that's stressing you out, you need to know from the inspiration of Daniel 11 that whatever it is that's going on, it's not outside of God's plan for your life. My friends, may you be encouraged to hold fast this morning to the promise, the glorious promise of Romans 8, 28. For we know, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to His purposes. All things will work together for the good. Why? Because you are greatly beloved and God has not abandoned you. So Father, Lord, we just let that word settle into our hearts.